Great music is constantly surprising. But what's odd is that when we get to know it better, that element of surprise doesn't go away. On the contrary, it increases. The more familiar a masterpiece becomes, the more surprising it seems. And that's something of a paradox. After all, if a dog you didn't know was there started barking in the next door garden, you'd be surprised. But the more it barked, the less surprised you'd be. You'd have got used to the idea that there was now a dog where there was not a dog before. There's plenty of good music that surprises us just like that dog. When we hear it first, we're amazed. But each time we hear it again, we get more used to it. We might still like it, or we might grow bored with it. Either way, it doesn't surprise us so much anymore. But with a work like Beethoven's Archduke Trio, the more we hear it, the more our sense of wonder at what we hear expands and deepens. Why is that opening tune, for example, so surprising? I don't have one answer, of course, and perhaps everyone who loves this melody will find their own surprising things about it. But I do notice several strange twists and turns that tease at my ear, that draw me into this music and make me involved with it. For example, take the very first notes. Beethoven could have written something more obvious, like this. Or like this. Instead, he's created a shape with a kind of hole or vacuum in it. There's a striking gap, a note that seems to be missing there. This one. And in the next phrase, that missing note becomes the most important note in the tune. This is a classic example of what I meant. When we first hear this tune, it can seem beautiful and quite typical. But the more we listen, the less typical and the stranger it comes to seem. At the same time, somewhere underneath this strangeness, there's another layer, a very simple archetypal shape, one of the commonest musical ideas of all. Beethoven's done is give all the different elements of that shape a shifting, unpredictable life that constantly surprises us. No part of the tune is ever quite where we would conventionally expect it to be. So, from the very beginning of this mighty work, our ears are teased. Beethoven makes us listen out for everything in the music that could be unstable. We become alert to the fact that every idea could be followed by a multitude of other quite different ones. Imagine, for example, that you or I were a good enough composer to write an opening melody like this. How would we have continued it? Perhaps like this.
It's wonderful like that. The tune haunts us, and the music sweeps us on, and the almost dance-like logic is clear. First, the piano gives us the melody. Then, the violin and cello answer it, while the piano plays a rocking accompaniment underneath. Except that's not what Beethoven does. What is that interruption that intrudes between the first half of the tune and the second half? It's strange because it comes from another world. It's a completely different musical idea, and it's even moving at a different speed. And yet, it doesn't interrupt the pulse. Only when we hear that interrupting music on its own does it become clearer what Beethoven is doing. To a music-loving audience of Beethoven's own time, that idea would have been quite clear in what it suggested. It's a recitative, an introduction. It belongs before the melody starts. It should have happened at the very beginning of the piece, but Beethoven places it here in the middle of the tune. This disturbs our whole sense of the order of what we're listening to now and later. It seems that in Beethoven's imagination, beginnings, middles, and ends can happen anywhere and any time, as though time itself was something that the composer could play with and bend whichever way he wanted. From the very beginning of this piece, we enter an entrancing maze of feints and deceptions, and ideas each one of which might lead we know not where. This opening theme is not just a theme. But a web of possibilities across which the composer can move like a spider in the strangest directions.
As the music sprouts ever more ideas and textures, Beethoven helps us to hold on to things by constantly returning to version after version of the opening five notes. Listen again to what the cello was doing in that last passage. And that's followed by music which plays a simple trick Beethoven always loved, and one that's especially important here in the Archduke Trio. Music where the top line and the bottom line are like mirror images of each other. When one goes up, the other goes down. I don't know why Beethoven loved this trick so much. Perhaps because it introduces a sense of shadow and mystery. Whatever the answer, it dominates a new, contrasting spider's web of ideas. He now begins to spin. Scales and lines going up and down, sometimes at the same time and sometimes in chains of question and answer. Although we hardly notice it, the idea is there in the first and very surprising piano phrase of this new spider's web. There's another surprise in there too, a fragment of tune in the cello and violin. that takes us back to the opening. And the connection's made not only by the similarity between the two tunes, but by the way both of them keep playing with the very same note, that note that was mysteriously missing from the very opening phrase. Here it's the key note, and it rings out over and over again. before melting back into the music of the opening once more. Well, that's what he does the first time round. The second time Beethoven approaches the same point in the story, the music goes somewhere else entirely.
another new spider's web begins, but still with threads to hold it to what went before, as the music now begins a concentrated meditation on those opening five notes of the piece. First in that passage, each of the three musicians in turn takes the five notes and plays with them. First the cello, then below the cello, the violin, then the piano. Then this haunting image of five notes is compressed by Beethoven to just three notes, and a new kind of play begins. So far, Beethoven's cast all his attention on those first five notes, playing with them and compressing them. Now he picks up the rest of the tune. And concentrates on that. There's another connection. For how does that compare to this? A reminder of that second spider's web with its reflecting lines going up and down at the same time. And as Beethoven prepares us to expect the opening music to return, it seems right that the many threads of the different spider's webs we've heard are drawn together.
now he's finding new surprises. You may have noticed that that old recitative music between the two halves of the tune has now been richly decorated, and the decoration spills out into the tune itself as though the tune and the interruption were melting into each other. And the tune itself is not the same. Those first five notes, for example, that he earlier compressed into three notes have now expanded to become six notes. By adding that one extra note, Beethoven has changed the whole shape and contour and the feeling of his melody. It means something new. And this sense of renewal doesn't stop there. It carries on into the very last bars of the movement. first movement is saturated with one of Beethoven's most characteristic tones of voice, a feeling of sublimity that comes in part from the fact that several of the melodies have an almost religious or hymn-like quality. The players have to make their instruments sing the music. In the next movement, by contrast, the players have to dance. And what a strange, mechanical little dance it starts out as, a little country band of two instruments and the music absolutely fixed in equal phrases that you could stamp across the whole floor to. The first movement began with the piano on its own, and then the violin and cello joined in. Here, the violin and cello begin, and it's the piano that joins in, teasing at the simple dance-like idea and little by little pulling at the rhythm to make the dance take on new and unexpected shapes. What had started out almost absurdly simple and easily danceable now seems much more tricky. 
There, Beethoven's moving the pianist's right hand one beat behind the left hand. The left hand begins on the first beat of the bar, the right hand on the second beat. And a moment later, the two stringed instruments begin on the third beat of the bar. As you can hear when you add the piano. So, not so simple and crude after all. A moment after that, a new contrasting idea starts up in the cello all by itself. Now, what rhythm is this supposed to be in? On its own, with nothing else to mark the pulse, it's virtually impossible to tell. It's only when this passage unfolds as an eerie fugue that we begin to hear what Beethoven's doing. Melody across the strong beats, and there are still more surprises to come. This strange and sombre fugue suddenly flowers into the opposite: delightful dance music, a waltz, and in a new and unexpected harmony, miles away from where the movement began. Again, this is only the start of something. This vigorous launching out into a waltz keeps returning, but each time in a different key, in a different place, if you like, in Beethoven's imagination. Here's the next time, and here's the time after that. So. The harmony of this movement, that started out so simply, has gone on a long journey, starting here, but moving away to, before returning home again. A journey out of simple harmony and back again, and there's a similar journey in the rhythm too, from a simple start. To the strange rhythmic complexities of the fugue, and then through an even stranger version of the same idea, and back to simplicity again.
At the very end of this movement, Beethoven returns one last time to the strange rhythm of the sort of fugue. But it's changed again. This time, it's not going anywhere. It simply repeats itself monotonously, rocking gently backwards and forwards, before one last surprise at the end. After this dance-like music, in the third movement, Beethoven returns to the hymn-like qualities of the first movement, with one of the most beautiful tunes he ever wrote. In fact, so beautiful did his 19th-century admirers find it that they fitted it to words by Goethe and sang the result as an anthem when they unveiled a monument to the composer in his hometown of Bonn in the 1840s. Just like in the first movement, the piano begins this hymn alone. And only later do the strings join in. On this wonderful chorale-like tune, Beethoven writes a series of five variations. The character of each is quite different, and the surprise is concentrated in their beginnings. You quickly get to know the tune and the harmonies, but you don't know what the composer is going to do with them. So you wait, and the start of each new variation brings new surprise and pleasure. Typically for Beethoven and the whole classical period, one of the most obvious tricks is to speed up the texture of the music while keeping the underlying pulse the same. So, the melody of the tune was filled with quavers, pom 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 pom. Now twos become threes, da ba 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 ba, and the harmonies start to shimmer and tremble. It's the piano there that does the trembling. The solemn, deep notes in the cello keep alive the memory of the original hymn. In the next variation, the cello and the violin join the shimmering, and the texture quickens. The same music takes the same time, but there are more notes. And the texture of the next variation is quicker again. So far, so logical. The surprise at the beginning of each variation, but thereafter, once we've got the idea, we can relax and take pleasure hearing music we've already heard sounding different.
but also underneath the tangle of new notes, always sounding the same. Things begin to get more complicated, however, with the fourth variation. In the piano left hand, we hear another speeding up, but in the right hand, almost a slowing down, a floating, offbeat, flowing rhythm. And behind the rippling surface of that piano sound, the strings return to the original hymn, even simpler this time than when we first heard it. Now, Beethoven also begins to change the music. After sticking exactly to the shape of the hymn for the first three variations, he begins to flatten or squeeze the harmony. This chord, for example, from time to time, is pushed downwards into this. And when we get to what seems like the next variation, this flattening or pushing down becomes even stronger and considerably more surprising. What is Beethoven doing here? Well, one thing is to signal that the harmony is finally changing and the music is soon going to move far away. This marvellous set of variations has been based around this key. But this is a long way away from where we're heading, back to the home harmony of the Archduke Trio. The way the chords and tunes squash and warp at this point prepares us for this slithering move. But this final variation is also not really a variation. The beautiful formal hymn has suddenly collapsed and left us just with threads and scraps. And that too prepares us for the arrival of the final movement. So, 
The first movement was like a hymn, the second like a dance, the third like a hymn again, and now the fourth is another dance movement, albeit a rather different kind of dance. No waltzes here. So what kind of dance is it? There are several clues in the music. The pulse throughout is in two pairs of two beats, or towards the end, two sets of three beats. Put that together with the many different contrasted but equally lively sections, and it seems Beethoven had in mind the most popular dance in Europe in his day, the contredanse, or as it later became known, the quadrille. But of course, this isn't actually music to dance to. Like many other pieces of classical music, including important pieces by Beethoven himself, this is music about dancing, about the idea of dancing, and the joy and sometimes even the laughter of dancing. It begins with one of those loud flourishes that the dancers don't actually dance to. The point is to catch everyone in the room by surprise and make them aware that the dance is beginning. In a true quadrille or contredanse, the whole of those first eight bars after the loud flourish are also just preparation, giving everyone a sense of how the tune goes and what the beat will be. Only after they've finished does everyone move. Once this catchy first dance tune has run its course, it's promptly replaced by another. I mentioned the laughter and pleasure of dancing. You can certainly imagine that here. Now, the idea that this is music about dancing rather than music for dancing begins to lead Beethoven into a whole tangle of associations unfolding one after another. For example, in the sprightly decoration, you can hear echoes of the skipping surface found in other popular dances of the period, like the Polonaise, for example, which is normally in three-time. This skipping quality begins to change and transform itself. You couldn't dance to this music because although it's still moving in simple four-bar patterns which give it an endlessly dance-like feel, that very endlessness means that you'd never know where you were in the dance. Beethoven is building the four bars into whole chains of ideas, each of which takes the previous idea a stage further. <laughs> Notice, for instance, how the polonaise-like skipping is expanded in the piano part. And an element of slithering chromaticism begins to creep into the music, which is immediately seized upon by the violin and cello. And that, in turn, is taken yet further by the piano. Did you notice there that when the piano answers the strings, Beethoven brings in his favourite trick of having the top and the bottom of the music reflect each other, 
The left hand goes up and then down. The right hand down and then up. And then even that strong idea is dissolved into something else. And when, much later on in the movement, Beethoven returns to this same music, the dissolution is even more radical. In each of the earlier movements, there was a moment, sometimes several, where the music landed us on a strange harmony or in a strange key far from home, and that's exactly what's happened here. After pages of dancing in the home key, Beethoven's let the music slip down a notch. The effect is like the sky going dark before a thunderstorm, and the contradanse rhythm changes from two groups of two beats. To two groups of three. Beethoven wants that same effect, but at this speed. The darkness of that harmonic storm clears as quickly as it came, and the music races to the end. This dance has moved far beyond a quadrille and becomes something much more like a tarantella—that southern Italian number from which people were supposed to drop from exhaustion. Familiar shape begins to appear in the music, and never more so than with amazing dramatic force in the closing bars of the Archduke Trio, when we suddenly hear this. Yet another version of that old shape, and its reversal, which we've been listening to right from the very beginning of the work. Let's return to my opening point. Great music is constantly surprising, but what's odd is that when we get to know it better, that element of surprise doesn't go away. It's a strange business that the more familiar a masterpiece becomes, the more surprising it will seem to us. Someone else once put this same point much better. One of Beethoven's greatest admirers, the composer and writer E. T. A. Hoffman. 
Hoffman wrote an article in which he boldly compared Beethoven to Shakespeare. Our critics, he said, have often accused both Shakespeare and Beethoven of lacking inner unity and inner continuity. Although for those who look more deeply, there springs forth within their work, issuing from a single bud, a beautiful tree with leaves, flowers, and fruit. In the instrumental music of Beethoven, the high self-possession inseparable from true genius stands revealed. And it's worth remembering that when Hoffman wrote those words, he had almost certainly not yet heard this brand new masterpiece. The Archduke Trio.